Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 60 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you today? Hi, good. Excited for episode 60, a big milestone. We kind of skimmed over 50, so I feel like we should make a bigger deal of this one. Did we? Oh, I didn't even realise. Yeah, well, we should then if that's the case, although it's... uh not a particularly celebratory case that we're covering, but it is uh, no. <laughs> one that's been highly requested. So uh, we'll jump straight into it after our Patreon shout-outs, Chloe. Yes, thank you so much and welcome to Chloe Roger, Kylie Bucket, Ashley, Andrea Frost, May Pratt, Trish Ann, Donna McCall, Anne-Marie Phillips, Susan, Matt Parsons, Michelle Brown and Karen Williams. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Before we get into today's case, we wanted to advise listeners that this episode contains extremely graphic content, descriptions of sexual assault and drug use, so we'd encourage everyone to exercise self-care and look after themselves when listening to this episode. Today, Chloe, we're talking about a case that's one of, if not the most brutal and senseless crime we've ever covered and that's ever occurred in Australia. Adding to that, it's not only the innocence of the victims, the tranquil setting in which it occurred, but the unbelievably unfortunate timing of events that makes this tale an extremely difficult one to hear. Saturday, 13th of September, 1997. Canberra, Australian Capital Territory. Rosemarie was walking down Garema Place, an area known to drug users, when two men pulled up in a Ford Telstar and began talking to her. The big guy called himself Les, and he and his smaller mate Kiwi wanted some help injecting speed. They had the gear in their car, but they were new to it. They asked Rosemarie if she'd be able to help them. Sensing the pair were paranoid about being in the area with drugs in their car, Rosemarie agreed to go with them to the nearby Canberra showground and hopped into their car. After helping the pair, she asked to be dropped back at Garima Place, but the men just looked at each other and drove in the opposite direction. Les climbed into the back seat next to Rosemarie and said, we're going to fuck you now. 
and he pulled out a 10-inch pig hunting knife to show her how serious he was and how useless it would be for her to protest. Rosemarie endured 12 hours of horror as the pair kidnapped and repeatedly raped her, with Les constantly beating her around the head and instructing her to do it properly and not use her teeth. When they stopped at a rest area outside of Bowral, Rosemarie said she needed to use the toilet. Les and Kiwi let her go, and the battered 19-year-old ran for her life. Rosemarie tore through the bushes nearby and into the black of night. She soon heard the men giving chase, yelling behind her. Scrambling to keep her feet as tree branches sliced her arms as she ran, Rosemarie stumbled upon a wombat burrow and crawled inside. Les and Kiwi went straight over it and passed her. She waited and came out only after she was sure they'd gone and ran to the safety of a nearby farmhouse. The 5th of October 1997 was a beautiful day on the New South Wales Sapphire Coast. It was the Labor Day long weekend and in the town of Bega there was a festival underway which would culminate in a fireworks display this Sunday night. Around 10 minutes out of town to the east was the small hamlet of Kalaroo. Here, two young girls, 14-year-old Lauren Barry and 16-year-old Nicole Collins, had joined some friends camping at a location near White Rock, which was a further four kilometres or so towards the sleepy coastal town of Tarthra. This was a beautiful area to live and grow up. Bega itself is obviously quite well known for its rich green pastures and thriving dairy industry, particularly its cheese. Closer to the coast, going through little places like Kalaroo towards Tarthra, and we're talking breathtaking bays, rocky headlands and peaceful spots perfect for youngsters to camp with friends, listen to music by a fire, eat, drink and dance to their heart's content. And that's just what Lauren and Nicole were doing that very weekend. It was Lauren's 15th birthday soon, so this would serve as a bit of a celebration for her. But being the long weekend, it was just a good chance in general for them to enjoy themselves. Nicole's stepfather, Graham, who was a local vet, had helped the girls set up their campsite on the Friday. And since then, Nicole and Lauren had enjoyed riding their horses with their friends over the past couple of days. No doubt feeling safe and carefree, being relatively close to home and with so many people they knew. Lauren's brother Nathan was one of the people joining the camp at various times. He came and went over the weekend as he was a little older and had a car, and he also had his friend Todd Haddenham down from Sydney for the long weekend. Also at the camp were Nicole and Lauren's friends Sarah Darcy and Rebecca Kemble, and they had their respective boyfriends with them too, Malcolm Denning and Damien Brown. So it was a decent-sized group at the campsite, a group of youngsters doing typical teenage stuff around the campfire, hanging out, joking, laughing and having a drink. At some point during the night, Nicole, who had recently broken up with her boyfriend, Andrew Irving, she decided that she wanted to talk to him and potentially reconcile. Perhaps Nicole and Lauren, being the only two without partners at the campsite, felt a bit left out. Whatever the case, Nicole and Lauren decided to go on a walk to a party at Christine James's house in nearby Gillette Gillette, where Nicole's ex-boyfriend was. They'd been discussing doing this throughout the night, 
As when Lauren's brother Nathan went to leave at one point, somewhere around 9pm, Rebecca contemplated telling him so he could give the girls a lift. But Nathan left before Rebecca could mention that, and perhaps Lauren and Nicole hadn't made up their minds at that point. They later did and left camp to make the eight-kilometre walk somewhere around 9.30pm. Rebecca, Sarah and their boyfriends were all of the thought that the girls likely wouldn't make the full walk. It was a bit late, they'd already been out there for a couple of nights, so they were probably tired. It was the general consensus that they would probably reach Nicole's house in Kalaroo halfway into their journey, pack up stumps and just crash at Nicole's. As the girls left camp, Sarah called out, where are you going? To which Nicole replied, to fix up my life. Her and Lauren left, walking through the bush to the B. Gatatha Road near Evans Hill. A short time later, around 10 past 10, Nathan arrived back at camp, having only missed the girls by a matter of minutes. Although Nathan and Lauren fought like cat and dog, like most siblings, they were very close and got along like a house on fire otherwise. They shared a group of friends, which isn't uncommon in smaller towns like this. We can see that in Lauren and Nicole's friendship itself. Despite the girls being two years apart in age and year levels at school, they were still best friends. Nicole was born on the 14th of November 1980. She was 16 at this time and in year 11 at Bega High School. Lauren was born on the 11th of October 1982. She was 14 at this time to turn 15, as we said, and in year 9 at Bega High. Lauren, although younger, was the taller of the two. She had shoulder-length brown hair, a warm smile and eyes, and a little freckled nose that hinted at her love of the summer sun. Lauren was very much a homebody. She enjoyed hanging out with her folks and her brother Nathan. She was a kind soul, generous and fun to be around. The pair had a great connection and made each other laugh. Nicole was quite different to her best friend. She was shorter, had a fair complexion and blonde hair. She wore glasses and had a very outgoing personality. Nicole made friends easily. She was vivacious and full of energy. The pair were a great team and shared a lot of fun times together. This weekend was just another one of those. At least it was to this point as the pair left their campsite, headed to the B. Gatatha Road towards this party where Nicole's ex-boyfriend was. Sadly, the girls wouldn't make their destination. The following morning, Nathan arrived back at home where, upon arrival, his parents, Garrett and Cheryl, asked where Lauren was. Nathan assumed she was at home, but if not, they'd probably crashed at Nicole's. But they needed to find her because Lauren was due to go to Sydney for a short holiday. Cheryl called the Collins house and spoke with Nicole's mum, Delma. The girls weren't there either. Next port of call was the campsite. Perhaps the girls had returned in the early morning while Nathan was asleep or maybe they'd slept nearby someplace. Garrett and Nicole's stepfather, Graham, went to check. The girls' friends were still at the site, but Lauren and Nicole weren't. At first, it was probably only the girls' parents panicking, but pretty quickly, when all of the usual spots the girls frequented were checked, the mood had changed from concerned to downright scared. First thoughts were the girls were perhaps injured in the scrub someplace, No one at the party the night before had seen them, so they clearly hadn't made it there. The police were notified and the SES assisted with searching for the girls in the bush. Rebecca and Sarah rode their horses along trails, calling out to the girls to no avail. Garrett and Graham searched the clifftops along the ocean, again with no result, and Nathan trawled the highways, looking on the roadsides for any signs of his sister and her best friend. 
and people from the community began aiding in the search too. By late on the Monday, when no sign of the girls had surfaced, the dread had set in for the Collins and Barry families. Searches wound down for the day come nightfall, and when they resumed the following morning, the police began investigating other possibilities. The girls hadn't been found hung over someplace at some other friend's house. They hadn't been found injured despite exhaustive searches. So that left two real possibilities. One, they'd run away of their own accord, or two, they'd been abducted and possibly met with foul play. It was established pretty quickly when talking with the families that Lauren and Nicole were happy young girls who had no reason to run away and kept in constant contact with their families. They hadn't done this before. It was extremely out of character. And their friends corroborated this too. There'd been no indication from the pair that they were going to do something like this. So police were looking at a scenario of abduction and potential foul play here. Of course, they had to keep their minds open to all possibilities, but while searches remained ongoing and missing posters went up around the broader area, the investigative wheels were in motion in the background. Over the next couple of weeks, a few important sightings and subsequent reports to police would occur, although the relevance of these wouldn't become fully known until later. Peter Taylor was watching a line search near his 28-acre hydroponic farm on the corner of Old Wallagoot Road and Sapphire Coast Drive. He'd heard about the missing girls, but he also had his work to do. He noticed while driving into town at one point that the sign advertising their farm had been taken, probably thrown into the scrub. This wasn't uncommon, their sign had been vandalised a few times. When he stopped to try and retrieve it, he noticed a small pile of clothes on the ground. Again, not uncommon or even noteworthy at this location, but it had turned out to be a very important sighting. Alan Lane, another local resident of the nearby caravan park, he also saw this clothing on his way to the tip. He was helping someone move house at the time, so Alan stopped and picked up the clothing, and when he returned to the caravan park, he handed it in as lost property. The caravan park owner-manager, Carol Markinich, She recognised the clothing immediately as Lauren Barry's. Lauren and Nicole often visited friends at the caravan park. So Carol called it in to the police. Sergeant Shane Box attended to retrieve the clothing items. They were a blue mauve jacket and a red flannel shirt. Sergeant Box took the items to the Collins and Barry families and Cheryl and Garrett confirmed these were indeed Lauren's. So one can only imagine the pain these parents were going through at this time and to have a couple of pieces of your daughter's clothing arrive in the hands of police officers. It's a very difficult situation to even think about, let alone deal with, as both the Barry and Collins families were at this time. Alan Lane himself would actually come under scrutiny from police after this. Reports of Alan's van being in the area at this time were made to police. Combined with him being the one who found the clothing, and the six-year-old was ripe for some extensive questioning. Reports from local residents hearing screams near this location on the night the girls went missing were also reported to police. Ultimately, Alan was not connected at all and would be just another local caught up in this whirlwind sweeping the otherwise quiet coastal region. Mounted police and the dog squad joined in the search for Nicole and Lauren in the time after this as the news of the girls' disappearance hit national headlines. At this time, the families made emotional pleas at a press conference. In what must have been an incredibly difficult and emotional time for the families, they all dealt with it in different ways. 
Not only did they have to endure the pain and thoughts of something potentially horrible happening to their daughters, they had to deal with garbage like hoax letters, letters suggesting the girls had been kidnapped by wealthy overseas businessmen who were in cahoots with the Australian government, selling young women to harems. As ridiculous as that sounds now and probably did at the time, amongst the craziness of the searching and the emotional roller coaster, it was just another pain point for the families and friends of the two girls. Offers from clairvoyance were now flooding in to help locate the girls, but it would be a sighting by a local woman which would turn out to be quite important. Susan Robinson was driving home to Tarthra on the night the girls were last seen. Susan and her daughter were returning from a wedding they'd attended in Marimbula. On the Bega Tarthra Road, they came across a car stopped in the road. Standing by the car were two girls and a man. Susan presumed they were hitchhikers, and her daughter thought the male was a local Indigenous man she knew from around town. The car moved over, and Susan went around it, and they were on their way. She didn't think a lot about it until a couple of weeks later when the news of the two missing girls had really cranked up locally. And we mentioned the flyers, but this was really a big deal in the area. Posters were up at the shops, bus stations, people even had posters in their own car windows. So once Susan realised the potential importance of what she'd seen, she reported it and a description of the car to the police. Turned out it wasn't the local man her daughter had seen, and he too, like Alan Lane, was cleared after questioning. By this time, it was about a month since the girls had gone missing, and it was at this point, sadly, the physical search for Lauren and Nicole was scaled back. Active inquiries were now in the hands of detectives. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The search for the missing Bega schoolgirls, Nicole Collins and Lauren Barry, had been scaled back around one month after their disappearance. The presumption now was that they'd been abducted and met with foul play, despite initial local thoughts that they'd run away voluntarily. It appeared now that wasn't the case. The case itself was now in the hands of detectives, Mark Winterflood being one of the lead investigators on the case. Police had several lines of inquiry at this stage. One of those was actually Graham Potter, the current day fugitive, who at this time had been released from jail after serving 15 years for the murder of Kim Barry in 1981. We covered this case back in episode 38. Potter had been living in Bega since his release, prior to going on the run again for various other crimes, and he remains at large to this day. Police looked into him with a sharp eye back at this time, but ultimately, Graham Potter had no connection to this case. A more promising lead was called through from a detective in the inland town of Yass. He had a red-hot tip about a pair of crims who'd graced the town with their pitiful presence over the past couple of years. 
Yass is a good three and a half hours northwest of Bega, around one hour north of Canberra. Bega detectives had no other red-hot suspects at this point, so they decided to take a look at the two men they'd been tipped off about, Leslie Camilleri and Lindsay Beckett. A local informant in Yass named Andrew Smart had told police that during a conversation with Camilleri and Beckett, the pair had arced up at the mention of the two missing Bega girls, saying words to the effect of, I bet the coppers try and pin this on us. Smart thought this an odd comment to make, but he knew the men's history, what they were capable of, and he knew they'd been in Bega the last couple of months. Leslie Camilleri was described as a standover man, a guy with imposing size who used it to intimidate others. Lindsay Beckett was his loyal lapdog who often slept on Camilleri's porch awaiting orders so he could get his next hit of drugs from the larger and more cunning man. And when the pair weren't doing drugs, they were stealing cars. Camilleri was born in Liverpool, Sydney in 1969, From a young age, he was mixing with people in areas where unemployment and crime rates were equally high. By age 12, Camilleri was before the court for theft-related offences. This had little effect on his offending, it continued to escalate throughout his teenage years and moved into stealing motor vehicles, carrying weapons, possession and absconding. Camilleri was on a good behaviour bond in 1986 when he decided to flee New South Wales illegally for a fresh start in Queensland. But the sunshine did little to curb Camilleri's compulsions. The guy was seemingly obsessed with stealing everything that he could. He'd end up before the Queensland courts on 15 charges of motor vehicle theft, 8 charges of breaking and entering and 92 counts of stealing. He copped a three-year stretch for this series of crimes. Upon release, Camilleri began a relationship with a woman named Helen Suvlis. Helen had a nine-year-old daughter and she dated Camilleri for four months before he decided he wanted to return to New South Wales. Helen soon followed Camilleri down to Benelong, just outside of Yass. Soon after this, she fell pregnant to Camilleri and they had a daughter in March of 1994. With their family growing, they needed a bigger house, so they found one in Yass itself. And it was here that Leslie Camilleri met Lindsay Beckett, a drug-addicted local nicknamed Kiwi. The pair became friends, forming a bond over mutual interests in drug-taking and stealing cars. Lindsay Beckett was from New Zealand, as his nickname suggested. He was born in March 1974, but although he dubbed himself Kiwi, that wasn't his only nickname. Others called him Razormouth due to his gobful of jagged teeth. By all reports, Beckett had a tumultuous upbringing, with his own conception arising from the sexual assault of his mother by his father. Beckett's mother later married a man who was reportedly a violent alcoholic, who abused and beat her and her children. One time he stabbed Lindsay Beckett in the hand when he couldn't locate the car keys. Another time he lashed him with an electrical cord before kicking the boy unconscious. So Beckett turned to drugs to dull the pain, smoking marijuana initially, His drug-taking would get heavier as time went on, though. When he hit the age of 16, Beckett made way for Australia to live with his uncle in Colac, Victoria. He didn't hang around there for long before travelling up the New South Wales coast, where his already formed behaviours were on display as he racked up charges for property damage and assault. In 1992, Lindsay Beckett met Laura Lee Tatt, and the pair soon fell pregnant, the first of four children they'd have together while living in Griffith, New South Wales. But much like Beckett's past, the relationship was tumultuous. 
Beckett often beat his girlfriend when they fought, but somehow they remained together and ended up settling down in the town of Yass. And as we know, it was here that Beckett met Camilleri. So we've got a real pair of winners here, Chloe, and when combined, they made a real shit sandwich, who noticeably drove up the crime rate in the town of Yass. Camilleri was constantly before the courts on increasingly severe charges, Beckett often alongside him for similar offences. Camilleri had 10 counts of sexual assault brought against him in 1995, six of these being having sexual intercourse with a child under 16 and one of indecent assault against an 11-year-old girl. In 1997, Camilleri had a number of charges brought against him and subsequently dropped for various reasons, probably pertaining to evidence and testimony or lack thereof, and these were all either related to stealing goods or sexual assaults. He was accused of breaking into a young woman's home and attempting to rape her. And again of sexually assaulting a minor a number of times over a 12-month period, during which he'd forced her to perform oral sex on him and forced intercourse upon her. This was reportedly his partner Helen's daughter he'd done this to. Camilleri would end up serving periodic detention for his ongoing spate of crimes, at least the ones he was charged for, but it appeared he had a lot of flexibility with serving this as he was able to change up his days from weekends to weekdays and then eventually just stopped attending altogether. Beckett too was busy copping charges for receipt of stolen goods, driving while intoxicated and possession. The pair had moved on from marijuana by 1997 and had begun taking amphetamines, speed predominantly, which they injected into one another during extended three- and four-day binges where neither of the men slept. By this time, Lindsay Beckett had over 50 charges on his rap sheet and Leslie Camilleri a whopping 146 convictions. Yet the pair were still out and about, on bail. They decided to travel south to Canberra, where they went on another drug-fueled binge and committed a very serious and violent sexual crime. We covered the details of this in the intro, but we'll come back to this and refresh on what happened in Canberra as it becomes quite important later on. Needless to say, it was this spree of crimes that had well and truly put Camilleri and Beckett on the police radar as prime suspects in the disappearance of Lauren Barry and Nicole Collins. Lindsay Beckett had been brought in by federal police for vehicle theft-related charges and was being held when Detective Mark Winterflood and Stuart Gray headed to Canberra to interview him and Leslie Camilleri. Camilleri was also in custody in Goulburn Jail for breaching bail. But the detectives went to see Beckett first, as that was closest. And it was during this car trip we'd seen one of the most important clues in the investigation come to the surface. Weeks earlier, during initial reports we've heard about, when Lauren Barry's clothing had been discovered and Susan Robinson had seen the car on the Begatathra Road, another report had been made to police by a local abalone diver. On the morning after the girls had gone missing, he reported seeing a pink television on the roadside as he drove by Evans Hill. When he passed back by the same spot only a short time later, the pink TV had disappeared someone had picked it up. Another local, a surfer, reported a similar thing. In the context of the girl's disappearance, the report didn't mean much on its own. Police took it, as they did many reports, from good-natured locals trying to help. On the drive to Canberra, Detective Grace suggested that it would make sense if these guys had abducted the girls. To make room for them in the car, they'd have to chuck the TV out, right? It mightn't have fit otherwise. 
And we're talking old school big box televisions back at this time too, not your modern day flat screens. Detective Winterflood saw the logic, especially considering Beckett and Camilleri had kids. They likely had a car full of baby seats and toys, etc. But really, Winterflood thought it a pretty loose theory and there was no link to the girls or the potential crime that had occurred. It was just as likely someone offloading their trash and someone else thinking at treasure and picking it up. So the detectives arrived in Canberra to interview Lindsay Beckett. They'd taken some items from his car too, some of which appeared to be blood-stained clothing and also a map of the Bega area. Whether incriminating or not, Beckett sure wasn't concerned about it. He was cool as a cucumber during the initial stages of interview. But then towards the end of the interview, the detectives asked about the TV. And this really seemed to hit a nerve with Lindy Beckett. He went very quiet and was noticeably less collected than he'd been up until that point. He admitted having a TV in the car in Bega, but said he couldn't remember much about it. Was it agreed that apart from the three people I've described, there's no one else in the room? That's correct. And you agree just looking at the monitor there, it's 11.58 and a number of seconds? Yes. Okay. Can you recall the television being in the back seat at all at that time? Can you recall getting rid of those bags and stuff like that? Can you recall getting rid of the television at any time during that trip? No. So that was that for now. The police probed further into this TV connection and to the detective's surprise, this little piece of previously unimportant information now had some meaning. Inquiries led police back to the aforementioned informant, Andrew Smart, who had tipped the police off to Camilleri and Beckett in the first place, and they discovered that Beckett and Camilleri had received a TV from Smart. They'd either taken it or it was payment for a drug deal. Reports varied on that point. Police now had to establish if this was the same TV seen in Tarthra on the roadside. They had to track the TV. They went to the second-hand dealer where Smart had gotten the TV from originally. This was a place called K&D Treasure Trove next to the Commonwealth Bank in Yass. Police spoke to the proprietor, Kevin McCann, and he was able to confirm some basic details surrounding the purchase. But in his memory, the TV was a wood grain finish, brown or black, so it looked like the one McCann was referring to wasn't this same one on the roadside in Tarthra. Detectives Gray and Winterflood hit the road, but 20 minutes into their drive, they received a phone call from Kevin McCann. He had a closer look through his records and found more details on the sale of this TV, including the serial number. But most importantly, he told detectives that the TV wasn't actually black or brown. It was pink. It had been painted. So Winterflood and Gray were over the moon with this revelation and police promptly began appealing to the public in the Greater Bega region for information about this TV, advertising the serial number, a description of its colour and brand. I believe it was a Chrysler brand, this TV, not like the car manufacturer, spelled K-R-I-E-S-L-E-R. Soon enough, the television was located, and it had done the rounds. The morning after the girls were last seen, the local abalone diver had seen the TV on the roadside near Evans Hill. After this, a council worker was going back to Bega, having been in Tarthra, to clean the public toilets. After refilling the dunny rolls and fanning a few urinal cakes into the trough, the worker headed along the Bega-Tarthra road when he spotted the TV on the roadside. 
Doing his civil duty, he picked it up and took it to a dumpster in Bega. I'm not sure if this was a rubbish bin or a donation-style bin like in St Vinny's. Whatever the case, the bin was full, so he left it on the ground next to the bin. A short time later, a pair of young locals saw the television set, picked it up and took it home. Here, they painted it black and then went on to sell it to a local motel called the Bemboka. The hotel owners paid $60 for it and put it in one of their rooms. When they were out for food shopping, they saw one of the aforementioned police advertising posters and checked the serial number when they got back. Lo and behold, it matched. So police had the TV and the chain of custody of this TV leading back to Leslie Camilleri and Lindsay Beckett. Detective Gray's theory had some serious legs now as the TV was dumped close to where the girls had last been seen. It placed the pair in the area at the time of their disappearance. So next it was time to interview Leslie Camilleri at Goulburn Jail. He was less than helpful, spinning some casual, vague stories and really admitting to nothing whatsoever. He too was arrogant and calm, having been in this position many times before. Detectives again waited till the end of the interview to ask Camilleri about the TV. Camilleri, who'd been nonchalant the entire time, suddenly went very silent for almost an entire minute. He gave nothing away and the interview concluded. A short time later, the guards were called to Camilleri's cell as he'd been repeatedly banging his head against the wall, spitting lines about the police knowing about the TV. He required sedation to stop him from doing some serious damage to himself. So both Beckett and Camilleri were in custody, miles apart. It was a great chance for police to split them, but they had to pick their mark. Beckett was clearly the weakest link, so they re-interviewed him, and during questioning, Detective Winterflood put two large A4 photos of Nicole and Lauren on the table in front of Beckett. These were big colour shots of the girls' faces. Beckett couldn't look at them and he immediately flipped the photos over. They had him rattled. The detectives then told Beckett the story they had. They had both of them in the area. They roughly knew what had happened and that Camilleri was no longer loyal to him. The detectives added that Camilleri would be made the same offer later this same day, but for now, Beckett had the first chance to tell and show them exactly what had happened. Beckett left the room for a cigarette break and returned shortly after and told detectives he'd show them where the girls were. They were dead and he'd killed both of them. The detectives pulled a map out and Beckett pointed out a spot across the border in Victoria. It was time for a tour the most grisly part yet and the tale of what happened to Lauren Barry and Nicole Collins on the night of October 5, 1997. Lindsay Beckett took detectives to a location called Fiddler's Green Creek, which was in Victoria, around 200 kilometres away. As Beckett took detectives down into the dense scrubland leading to the creek, there was an overwhelming smell of decomposing human remains. Beckett showed the location of Nicole and Lauren's bodies and provided a walkthrough of events at the scene. This, combined with his statement, would outline the chilling series of events that occurred on the night of October 5, which ultimately led to Nicole and Lauren's murders. Beckett and Camilleri had made their way towards the beach in a banged-up old Ford Telstar earlier that day. 
The pair had been injecting one another with speed and they hadn't been to the beach in a while, so they thought they'd go for a cruise and suss out what parties were happening. Camilleri's partner Helen had enough of the pair boozing on during the day, so she booted them out, but rather than continue on drinking their Bundy rum and VB stubbies that they'd purchased earlier from the Monaro pub at Cooma, the pair decided to go for a drive instead. All the while, they're injecting themselves with more and more speed. They arrived in Bega and continued on towards Tarthra, and it was on this drive they happened upon Nicole Collins and Lauren Barry as they walked single file along the road heading towards Jellet. Camilleri and Beckett stopped their car in the middle of the road and began talking with the girls. And this was when local Susan Robinson and her daughter spotted them on their way home from the wedding in Marimbula. The local Indigenous man her daughter reported seeing was actually Lindsay Beckett, who was of Maori heritage. So this was around 10pm. What we know happened next for sure is the girls ended up in the Ford Telstar with Beckett and Camilleri. How they got in there appears to be a point of contention. In the research we did, there was a lot of talk around victim blaming when it came to people commenting that the girls were hitchhiking and shouldn't have been. The families are adamant that the girls wouldn't have voluntarily gotten into the car. Some police members seem to think that Beckett's version of events that the girls willingly got into the car to begin with, was true. Whatever way you slice it and dice it, in any of those scenarios, no laws were broken, no one's safety should have been compromised. It should never have led to what it did. So Camilleri was driving, Beckett was in the front passenger seat, and this was where the TV comes into play. The rear seat was full of stuff, clothing, kid seats, etc., so they moved a bunch of the clothing into the boot and threw the TV out to make room for the girls. Camilleri and Beckett suggested they all go to the festival in Bega. They looked for a few beach parties and found nothing, so what'd the girls think? According to Beckett, the girls were up for this as long as they could stop past the campsite and tell their friends where they were going. Camilleri agreed and they drove off. But here's the thing, Chloe. From this point, the girls were actually trapped in the literal sense. The door handles inside the car in the back seat were inoperable. Whether it was simply that the child locks were on, the handles were either old or not attached, or had been purposely sabotaged by Camilleri and Beckett, we're not sure about that. But they couldn't simply open the doors and jump out, we know that much. We've seen this type of thing before. Ted Bundy was probably the most infamous proponent of this method, but we also saw the Burnies, who we covered in the Morehouse murders, do something similar. So things were all seemingly calm at this point. As they headed towards the Tarthra Surf Club, Camilleri took a dirt track usually reserved for four-wheel drives towards the White Rock campsite, at which time the ruts and corrugations of the road began to cause the banged-up two-wheel drive Telstar a few problems. Camilleri flipped his lid at this point, flew off the handle, and produced a black-handled knife with a serrated edge. Beckett also got his knife out, and Camilleri told Lauren and Nicole to shut up and not say anything, If they didn't do what he said, he'd stab them. Beckett backed up Camilleri with similar threats, telling the girls to do what Les said. From here, they drove back towards Kalaroo and took the dirt road towards Marimbula via the Sapphire Coast Drive. Now's about the time we insert a trigger warning because things are about to take a brutal and graphic turn as we detail the horrifying series of attacks Nicole and Lauren suffered over the next 12 hours. As always, we try to strike a balance of detail and digestible, so we won't be spelling out the most vivid and disturbing parts of the attacks, 
but we do think it's necessary to go into some of it to show the brutality of the crimes and what the two girls endured. As they drove along, Beckett claims Camilleri asked, do you mind if we have sex with you? Camilleri and Beckett then stopped the car moments later, forced the girls from the car and raped them both at knife point. Lauren attempted to convince them not to, stating she was a virgin and was menstruating, but this didn't phase Camilleri and Beckett. Indeed, it seemed to excite Camilleri as he would later turn much of his attention towards Lauren. This was essentially the pattern that followed over the next nine and a half hours as they drove towards Eden on the Princess Highway. Next, Camilleri and Beckett topped themselves up with injections of speed as Beckett drove and Camilleri assaulted both girls in the back seat. They stopped next at the Ben Boyd National Park, where again, they forced Nicole and Lauren out and raped them at knife point, the details of which we won't go into. Beckett had worked in Eden on a fishing trawler at one point, and it appeared they spent some time here searching for a boat, but ultimately they decided to leave and push on towards Victoria, stopping again along the way to take more drugs and assault the terrified teenagers. At some point, Camilleri fell asleep, and when he awoke, Beckett told him they were in Victoria. Camilleri again lost his marbles at this because he wanted to head towards Sydney. Soon after this, they stopped again, at which time Camilleri took just Lauren from the vehicle and instructed Beckett to take Nicole for a drive and come back in 20 minutes or so. When Beckett returned, Camilleri told him that they couldn't go back now. They pushed on a further 60 kilometres until they took a turn in a northerly direction towards Bombala. 40 kilometres later, they arrived at a location called Fiddler's Green Creek, where Beckett pointed out a dirt track. Camilleri ordered him to pull up and they'd check it out. So this was just after 7am at this stage as Camilleri ordered the girls out of the car and forced them to walk through the thick scrub down an embankment towards the creek. Camilleri had ordered Beckett to reference their location with a piece of ripped cardboard from their slab of VB so they could find their way back. We took the, tied the girls up, tied their hands up, um, and they went, went down, to, down to the river. For the sake of the record, I'm showing Mr Beckett two colour photographs of Nicole Collins and Lauren Barry. It was her jeans. Huh? Yeah. Bits wrapped around their mouths? Yeah. Did you tear them up or cut them up or something? Let's tear them off. Right. Both of the girls had their hands tied up at this point and were suffering serious injuries in places we don't need to spell out from the night of terror they'd been through. Camilleri untied the girls and told them to get into the creek and wash themselves out real good, which was his attempt at trying to remove any evidence of the sexual assaults. Both girls were shivering and terrified when Beckett split them up, taking Nicole up the embankment a little way where he bound her hands and feet and tied her to a tree. He then gagged her so she'd remain quiet. Lauren had been hogtied on the ground near the creek bed, at which time Camilleri instructed Beckett on how he wanted the girls killed. Beckett supposedly protested this, thinking they were just going to leave the girls in the bush tied up. But Camilleri said they couldn't, that the girls would be able to identify them. Camilleri, sensing reluctance, told Beckett he'd kill him if he didn't do it. Beckett, apparently fearing for his own life now, proceeded to drag Lauren into the creek and forced her face down into the water, attempting to drown her. Lauren kicked hard and fought, and Beckett lost his footing, dropping his knee into the water. This annoyed him, so he withdrew his knife and stabbed Lauren in the neck continuing to hold her in the water until she was dead. 
Nicole possibly had a view of all of this from the tree she was tied to. Beckett then proceeded up the embankment and Nicole said, you're going to kill me, aren't you? Beckett then came up behind Nicole and cut her throat before proceeding to stab her repeatedly. Nicole thrashed about, trying to scream, but no noise came out. Beckett got his knife stuck at one point and, as Nicole was still alive, he then attempted to locate and stab her in the heart. He also failed at this, Nicole was still alive, so Beckett began kicking her until she eventually stopped moving and died. Beckett then picked up the ropes they'd used to bind the girls before walking back up through the scrub, blood covering his arms and face, to the car where Camilleri was. When Beckett got there, Camilleri asked him, Did you see the demon? Did you feel the demon? Camilleri then slept as Beckett drove them back to Canberra. They stopped at the Theodore lookout on the Monaro Highway to burn their clothing and the ropes they'd used to restrain the girls before going to the Commonwealth Avenue Bridge over Lake Burley Griffin, where they threw their knives into the water. After returning home to Yass, Camilleri and Beckett then went on to stay at Camilleri's brother's house in Sydney for a number of days, at which time they went to the Campbelltown Car Lovers Car Wash. They cleaned the Ford Telstar from top to bottom over a period of six hours at the car wash going as far as to remove the car seats and carpets in order to clean them as good as they possibly could. The last stop for the pair was a return trip to Bega, where they tried unsuccessfully to retrieve the pink TV set from the side of the road, the one thing that could and had led police back to them. As for the girls' families, well, the police had to deliver the tragic news after this, Probably one of the most difficult things about their job, and I'd wager this would have been one of the most difficult moments of Sergeant Shane Box's career when he had to deliver this message. The entire Bega Shire, and undoubtedly beyond, were completely shocked by the news. There was widespread devastation from family, friends and the broader community. Thousands attended a memorial service at Littleton Gardens on the 9th of November 1997. But now we get Leslie Camilleri's version of events because what we've heard by this point was Lindsay Beckett's version. Camilleri denied any involvement to begin with. Then he changed his tune saying they had picked up some girls. But from this point, he'd shot up that much drugs, he ended up almost overdosing and falling into a drug-induced stupor. Basically, he slept the whole time until later when he woke, Beckett was coming back to the car covered in blood. Camilleri had no idea what had gone on during this time and he had nothing to do with it. His story was weak and he and Beckett were charged with both murders and extradited to Victoria to face court. But the police still had the task of proving that Lindsay Beckett didn't act alone. They believed he was the puppy dog foot soldier to Camilleri, but they had to prove Camilleri's involvement, that he was a willing participant in the attacks that night. Beckett pleaded guilty right off the bat. He was complicit and agreed to give evidence against Camilleri. But the prosecution needed more. Alongside corroborating various aspects of the night by revisiting the scene and stops along the way, police had Lauren's clothing forensically analysed. If we recall, the jacket and flannel found had been returned to the Barry family. Traces of Camilleri's semen were found on Lauren's clothing, which supported Beckett's version of events and went against Camilleri's, proving he was involved in the attacks throughout the course of the night. Another important aspect was establishing the dynamic between Beckett and Camilleri and their general MO. 
And the prosecution were able to do this by going back in time to three weeks before Lauren and Nicole's murders, back to when Camilleri and Beckett had visited Canberra on another of their drug-fuelled crime trips. If you recall, we mentioned the Canberra exploits earlier and that we'd come back to them. Well, cast your mind back to the introduction, which details the attack the pair committed on Rosemarie Gandarius. She'd suffered an absolutely brutal attack, very similar to what Lauren and Nicole had endured, but she managed to escape and hide in a wombat burrow until Beckett and Camilleri gave up the chase. According to Beckett, the plan on this occasion was to kill Rosemarie after the 12-hour attack by dropping her off a bridge. Rosemarie hadn't made a formal statement at the time, as when she fled to the nearby farmhouse and the police were called, Camilleri and Beckett also showed up and disputed the version of events she told, stating it had been consensual sex in return for drugs. Rosemarie wanted to avoid retribution from the violent pair, but obviously things were very different now, and with her formal statement, police prosecutors were able to clearly outline that Camilleri wasn't just a willing participant, but the driving force in these attacks, and Beckett more like his drug-addled but equally violent butler. So this was very valuable tendency evidence for the prosecution in proving Camilleri's role in this whole thing, and prove it they did. Still, the trial itself was a horrible ordeal for the girls' families and friends. In court, Camilleri stared witnesses down with intent and purposefully yawned in an exaggerated fashion throughout proceedings. He displayed no remorse for his actions. Two months, 70 witnesses and a 48-hour jury deliberation later and Leslie Camilleri was found guilty of both murders. Judge Frank Vincent said upon sentencing, I consider my duty is clear. You are sentenced to imprisonment for life on each count with no possibility of release on parole. For your actions, you have forfeited your right to walk among us again. Camilleri later appealed his sentence, but that was dismissed. Lindsay Beckett also received a life sentence with a 35-year minimum term. Upon hearing the sentences, Delma Collins proclaimed yes from the gallery, while Cheryl Barry told Lindsay Beckett, I hope you rot in hell. Sentiments from both mothers that I think all of us listening would share. Both of these guys had extensive records, yet were out on bail in the time before the murders, with proceedings for other charges pending. The fallout from this would see harsh criticism and review of bail laws in New South Wales, leading to their tightening. Police were commended for their job in conducting the investigation which led to the apprehension of the two violent perpetrators. Many of the officers involved described the murders as the cruelest and most tragic they'd ever dealt with, some with 30-40 year careers behind them. The unfortunate timing of it all, the suffering the girls endured and the sheer brutality of the attacks changed so many lives outside of the obvious too. Families, obviously, but friends and the broader beggar community was changed forever after this. Our thoughts are with the Collins and Barry families all these years later. We sincerely hope they hold treasured memories of their girls and that Lauren and Nicole are at peace and remembered for who they were and not for what happened to them. And that's it for this week's case, Chloe. Yeah, this case is obviously so heart-wrenching and so infuriating. The loss of two lives in such a senseless way and the way that Camilleri in particular acted in court, the fact that he not only showed no remorse, but the fact he attempted to disrespect the court and the victims with his actions makes me sick. 
disgusting, awful humans, him and Beckett, absolute trash, and that doesn't even begin to cover it. And as you said a few moments ago, I think my only thoughts on this case are with the families. I hope somehow they have found some peace and have some joy in their lives now, I guess. What are your thoughts, Sean? Yeah, much the same, Chloe. Episode 60 uh, we're at today, and it's actually uh, the first case we've covered where I woke up from a nightmare during the week, Chloe, researching this, partly because I've got two daughters and partly because of how brutal this crime was. I really struggled listening to um, Lauren's brother Nathan too in the documentaries about this case. That guy was just someone... I personally felt I could relate to and and the love and hurt pouring out of that guy, you know, 20 years later, uh, that really, Mm. really tugged at the heartstrings. And Beckett and Camilleri, human garbage, as you said, a pair of absolute bin chickens and that's offensive to chickens. This won't be the last we talk about Leslie Camilleri either, Chloe. In 2013, he actually copped another 28-year sentence for murdering another young girl five years before this case. It was back in 1992. So we'll be covering that case in a couple of weeks' time, but uh, that's it from me. Yeah, well, to avoid any further nightmares, we definitely need a happy thought. So what's yours this week? Well, mine is uh, quite simply, you know, this is the first episode I'm recording in my new little uh, studio of all my new little office yeah. that I've made at the back. So uh, good, still ironing out, ironing out a few little things, but uh, feeling pretty comfy. So what's yours? Um, mine is that, so I was going to talk about outdoor PT being back, but I feel like I complain about doing exercise and being sore enough. So I'm going to change mine to a public service announcement, which is that on Apple Music, there's a playlist called MySpace <laughs> And it's the best thing ever. It's got like, I don't know, it's a pop punk emo 2010 to 14 dream. It's got <laughs> like Postal Service, Fallout Boy, Taking Back Sunday, Hello Goodbye. And I've been listening to it nonstop this week. I've been looking, trying to find, I cancelled my MySpace years ago, but I was prime for this. And just it's been nostalgic, it's been fun, and um, I was just loving it. So everyone who's in their 30s would probably appreciate this if you go look it up. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. I'll, I'll check, oh, I would check it out if I had Apple Music, but I have uh, Spotify, so sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Um, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes and a bunch of other uh, exclusive content as well. So feel free to go and check that out. That's it for us this week. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 